Hey everyone, welcome to Clinical Pearls. As I've said it many times, and it's actually one of our podcast taglines, medicine moves real fast. So in this podcast, we're going to cover the new SMFM console series number 53, which is intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. The last time I released a podcast on this subject was back in 2018. Well, here we are, 2021, and yet again, we've got new data. I learned that intrahepatic cholestasis was diagnosed as a total serum bile acid of greater than or equal to 10. And that's still valid, but we thought that significant morbidity happened at that bile level. The truth is, it's actually somewhat higher than that. So we're going to cover this information and a lot more regarding intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy regarding the new updated Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Consul Series number 53 on ICP. Whether you're a medical student, nursing student, resident, nurse practitioner, or anybody else in women's health care, we're here for you. This is Clinical Pearls. The incidence of intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy is around 0.3 to 0.5%, and it varies between populations. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, we're talking about an incidence of 0.3 to 0.5%? Is this really a big deal? Well, the answer is absolutely, because this has significant risks, mainly fetal, including prematurity and intrauterine fetal death. Now, before we go any further, we do need to solidify this issue that intrahepatic cholestasis, even though the incidence may seem kind of small, is really literally deadly for the fetus. There's a higher risk of stillbirth, specifically greater than 37 weeks, at a rate that's been quoted at 1.2% compared to 0.1% to 0.3% in the general population. This risk of stillbirth is actually highest if the serum bile acids are above 100 micromoles per liter. Now, this underlying mechanism of potential stillbirth causation is thought to be related to fetal arrhythmia or possibly placental vessel vasospasm caused by the increase in serum bile acids. There's also an increased risk of meconium stained amniotic fluid and preterm birth. In terms of maternal adverse outcomes with this condition, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy has a two to five-fold increased risk for the development of preeclampsia, and this happens with serum bile acids greater than 40 micromoles per liter. Now, this typically occurs two to four weeks after the diagnosis of ICP, so just because she has normal blood pressure at diagnosis doesn't mean she's out of the woods. You still got to track those serum bile levels because if they get greater than 100, remember, that is significant indications for induction of labor, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but there's also this increased risk of preeclampsia that starts at a total serum bile level of 40 or more. There are particular women who are at risk for ICP. Women with pre-existing hepatobiliary diseases are reported to be at higher risk for the condition. Also, patients with a history of ICP in a past pregnancy are at higher risk for recurrence. ICP has also been associated with multiple gestations and advanced maternal age. There's also tends to be familial clustering of cases of ICP, so it's important to ask about family history because there is this possible suggestion of a genetic component. One of the hallmark symptoms of ICP is pruritus. 
pruritus is a common complaint in pregnancy. Now in ICP, this itching is often generalized but predominantly affects the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. It's also worse at night and is generally not associated with a rash. The most frequent pathological causes of pruritus specific to pregnancy includes atopic eruption of pregnancy, polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, pemphigoid gestationalis, and ICP. So remember those other issues as potential differential diagnoses in patients that have pruritus in pregnancy, especially in the second and third trimester. ICP of pregnancy is specific to the second and more typically the third trimester of pregnancy. ICP should be considered in a woman who develops new onset pruritus in this later second half of gestation. In evaluating a patient for other potential causes of pruritus, one should assess the onset, extent, severity, any aggravating or alleviating factors, and include a detailed medical history. This can include things like what medications the patient is taking, any past allergies, or past history of any atopic dermatitis like eczema. They also should include a detailed history about the amount of bathing, household contacts, or pets, and even travel history because it can help set up a differential diagnosis. Sexual history and any history of intravenous drug use should also be assessed to ascertain the patient's risk of hepatitis and HIV. A history of intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy and any prior gestation should also be assessed as well because there is a higher risk of recurrence once it's happened before. All right, podcast family, here's a quick clinical pearl. If the patient also has excessive fatigue or insomnia, generalized malaise, or abdominal pain with or without colic, got to remember that these are not common symptoms of ICP. So if these are present, then there should be an evaluation of other causes of pruritus and possibly hepatic disease that can be a cause of the symptoms. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's get right into the laboratory evaluation or workup of this condition. If you suspect intrahepatic cholestasis, then the SMFM recommends measurement of serum bile acid levels and liver transaminases in anybody who is suspected of having this condition. The clinical diagnosis of ICP is based on pruritus symptoms and it's supported by the presence of elevated total serum bile acids and the absence of diseases associated with similar lab findings. A serum total bile acid greater than 10 micromoles per liter often is used to diagnose ICP, but the data that supports that is actually quite limited increase in transaminases can also sometimes be seen in ICP, although elevated transaminases are not necessary for the diagnosis. 
Although bile acid levels can be affected by a postprandial state, random bile acids can be used to diagnose ICP, and these are typically more convenient for the patient and the practitioner than fasting bile acids. So if anybody ever asks you if the patient has to be fasting for these total serum bile acids, the answer is no. Let's move on to the recommended treatments of cholestasis of pregnancy with a quick caveat. Even though there's been medication that's shown to be effective in reducing symptomatology, it's not clear if any medication can actually reduce perinatal morbidity or mortality. What the SMFM recommends, mainly for symptoms of course, is UDCA, that's urosideoxycholic acid. Remember, that's ursodeoxycholic acid, or UDCA. This is used as first line for the treatment of maternal symptoms. Remember, if you're ever asked why you're treating this medically, it's just for maternal symptom control, not necessarily for fetal benefits. Compared with placebo or any alternative regimen, UDCA is more effective in relieving the itching and improving laboratory abnormalities and has no known adverse fetal effects. The typical starting dose for UDCA is 10 to 15 milligrams per kilo per day. That's usually divided into doses taken two or three times daily. An easy regimen to remember is that it's typically anywhere from 300 to 500 milligrams taken twice daily up to three times daily. I know it's hard to remember UDCA, especially its entire true name, so most people just call it by its branded name, although I know there's issues with branded names, but it's easier to remember ursodiol than UDCA. And as a last clinical pearl regarding treatment, antihistamines like diphenhydramine or hydroxyzine have also been used for the itching with this condition, although these may have more limited benefit. Now, as we're talking about treatment or management in general, we've mentioned this before, but it's good to say it again now, that there is some clinical utility to following up serum bile acids, in other words, following their trend. Given that higher total serum bile acid concentrations have been associated with adverse perinatal outcomes in some studies, repeat bile acid measurements has been suggested as potentially useful in guiding management. And that's important because if it hits a certain level like 100, then that may be an indication for delivery. We're going to talk about induction of labor for this condition in just a minute, but short to say that follow-up testing can be done in some cases. All right, everyone, listen up. This is a great clinical question. And I ask this of our medical students and our residents all the time because it actually is a good question. How should a pregnant woman with itching and normal bile acids be managed, right? I mean, you suspect it. I mean, she's got itching in her palms and soles of the feet. You order serum bile acids and lo and behold, they come back normal. Well, what do you do there? Well, remember that the itching in ICP can actually precede the rise in serum bile acids by several weeks. So if symptoms persist and no other explanation for the itching exists, then measurement of the total bile acid concentration and serum transaminases should be repeated until you potentially discover the bump or the rise. Now, we're going to talk about when to deliver these women who have a clinical suspicion of the condition, but no lab evidence of the condition in just a minute. Before we get to the induction issue, though, what about antepartum testing? Well, SMFM does suggest that patients with a diagnosis of ICP begin antepartum fetal surveillance at a gestational age when delivery would be performed in response to an abnormal finding. 
The observed increased risk of stillbirth with ICP has prompted most practitioners to perform antenatal testing in this setting. However, the efficacy of this antepartum testing to prevent stillbirth with ICP patients is still unknown. The optimal frequency of testing is unknown, and it may be determined by criteria like other comorbidities or the level of total serum bile acids. All right, podcast family, and the most clinically appropriate question is, well, when do we get these patients delivered? Because we don't want to wait too long and risk stillbirth, and we definitely don't want to get out too early where there could be risk of prematurity. Well, here's the data. It all depends on that total level of serum bile acids. SMFM recommends that patients with total serum bile acids greater than 100 micromol per liter be offered delivery at 36 weeks of gestation or greater given that the risk of stillbirth increases substantially around this gestational age. They also recommend delivery between 36 weeks and 39 weeks so later on when serum bile acids are less than 100 micromoles per liter. Now, if waiting until 36 weeks makes you uncomfortable, there is a caveat for delivery between 34 and 36 weeks. And this can be considered in women with ICP who have a total serum bile acid greater than 100, but who also have one of the following conditions. They may have excruciating or unremitting maternal paritis that's not relieved by pharmacotherapy. In this cases, for just maternal symptomatic relief, you can get out again between 34 and 36 weeks of gestation. If the patient has a prior history of stillbirth before 36 weeks due to ICP and there's a recurrent ICP diagnosis, then you should consider delivery between 34 and 36 weeks of gestation. Again, especially if the total bile acid level is greater than 100. The other caveat for delivery between 34 and 36 weeks, if the patient has total serum bile acids greater than or more than 100 and they have pre-existing or acute hepatic disease with clinical or laboratory evidence of worsening hepatic function, then induction of labor is allowed between that gestational age. Remember, we're talking between 34 and 36 weeks of pregnancy. If we know that patients are going to be delivered, I mean, they're committed for induction and they are for delivery before 37 weeks and zero days. SMFM does recommend antenatal corticosteroids for fetal lung maturity. So remember that in those patients, even in the late preterm period, defined as 34 to 36 weeks and six days, SMFM does recommend steroids because these patients will not get to term. They're going to be offered and will have delivery before 37 completed weeks. Now, remember I brought up this clinical dilemma. What if you suspect ICP? I mean, clinically, she has it. And we know that the symptoms can lag before lab evidence. Well, when do you deliver a patient who clinically has ICP, but has normal total serum bile acids? Well, SMFM has an answer for that as well. They recommend against preterm delivery, again, defined as less than 37 weeks, in patients with a clinical diagnosis of ICP without lab confirmation of elevated bile acids. Remember, since most of the fetal morbidity or mortality is linked to that bile acid level, if it's normal, it's hard to justify delivery under 37 weeks. So in patients that you just clinically suspect it, but they have normal serum bile acids, SMFM says wait until 37 weeks and then try to get out, but try not to do it before. 
Now, 37 weeks is allowed even with normal serum bile acids because the patient's at least already term, even though it's early term, and the risk of stillbirth does increase around that gestational age, so we don't want to wait for the serum bile acids to become abnormal. Once again, if the patient clinically has a condition, means she's got itchy palms and itchy feet, and there's no other cause but her serum bile acids are normal, you can get out with a presumptive clinical diagnosis of ICP without lab evidence at 37 weeks. Well, we made it to our last clinical pearl. Given the risk for hepatitis C in these patients and the availability of an effective treatment, experts have advocated for routine testing for hepatitis C in patients who are currently diagnosed with ICP as well as those who deliver and are being cared for postpartum. So remember that one of the evaluations of ICP is a search for other hepatic causes of itching or liver dysfunction, and that includes an initial test for hepatitis C at time of diagnosis, as well as part of the surveillance postpartum. All right, everyone, we have covered intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. I'm telling you, stuff keeps changing. I learned that the level of greater than 10 was highly abnormal, and it is. But then it moved up to 40, and now we're at 100, where we know that at that level, there seems to be a significantly increased risk of fetal harm. That's why you've got to stay up to date. As always, thanks for being part of Clinical Pearls, and we'll see you on another episode.